Welcome back to the 62nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some of the top stories, talking about the Supreme Court, how it's kind of violated or at least expanded its original intent, and a case that's coming up pretty soon here that's actually going to infringe upon some unions and what they perceive to be their basic rights, as well as one article talking about Chinese secret police. And you may be thinking, well, you know, why, why wouldn't we talk about China? But they're operating here inside the United States and in other countries around the world. That's the interesting spin, and we'll get to that one last. And then we have our daily delight a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, over the two centuries, or a little bit more, that the United States has existed, a lot has obviously changed. The legislator and executive have both gained more power, more influence, and the ultimate government check the Supreme Court has as well. The Supreme Court no longer simply is a check on the other branches of government, but rather it makes its own legislation through rulings, sometimes ensuring our freedom as citizens and other times taking it away. And we are in a place where the question becomes, is there any way to change it? Can we go back to what the founders intended? Or are we at the point where we can't go back? And I think we all know the answer. I'm pretty sure that we cannot strip away years upon years of rulings, bureaucracies, and so on and so forth. But I asked a question, or this type of question the other day, if you were the ruler of the world, what would you do? Do you prefer what we have now? Or would you prefer to go back to the system that was in place at the beginning? To be clear, a lot of us don't necessarily have the insight to know what that system was like at the very beginning. But I'll tell you now, at the end of the day, it seemed to be less intrusive. I mean, the government, when it comes to the Senate and Congress, they would dissolve for years and wouldn't come back into Washington. They'd go about their lives, and then when a major issue came up, then they would come back to Washington. It's not like today where you have career politicians who simply sit in Washington for most of the year. So, you know, it's just a question I want to throw out there. Is the original intent actually good enough? Would it actually stand up today? Or this bureaucracy, this swamp, I don't necessarily think, uh, at some points I don't disagree with that term, but I don't necessarily think it's appropriate here. What I'll say is, is the system or is it what it needs to be with the amount of population change that we've had? Is it enough? Is it actually necessary to have a lot of these people who stay in their position year after year after year and stay there between governments to ensure that even if there are different people governing, that things are still implemented, the basics are still met, people still get certain checks that they need if they're on certain programs, that FEMA can still operate no matter who's in office. Is that necessary now because of how large we've become? And is it actually serving the the United States? Is it serving the people? Or 
is it necessary because we built it that way and it actually just serves the people that work in these agencies and have these jobs? It's a very complex question, but it's just one of those rantings that I thought of when I was writing, th- reading through some of these articles and writing out a, a daily debate. All right, so let's jump to our first article from the American Institute for Economic Research. I know, right? Coming from the Institute of Economic Research again? Alex, what are you, what are you doing? But they have a very interesting article. The Supreme Court's complacency in our loss of freedom. Once again, another sensational headline from them, just like the other day. So the founders of this many, the many founders of this nation had many fears and concerns about the future of how we or how they would want their nation to operate and to appear. Some wanted a strong national government. Others did not. They, of course, came to an agreement wherein it would not be so weak as to be useless but balance it in a way to keep any one part from having too much power. Quote, in Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton defended the judiciary, calling it the least dangerous branch, since it would have neither the legislator's control over spending nor the executive's power of enforcement. Hamilton argued that the judiciary review the ability of the court, in this case the Supreme Court, To validate legislation passed by a legislator, in this case Congress, poses no threat to the rights of Americans, but was essentially essential to protecting them against the possible encroachment by the political branches, end quote. So the judiciary does not have the power to write the paper. It doesn't sell the paper or enforce the paper, quote-unquote, if you were comparing it to the executive. They're more like the editor's making sure that everything's in order and people's freedoms are not being violated, not being encroached upon. But this, of course, has changed. The court has mandated monopolies be broken up, given v. Ogin, the schools, that schools be integrated, Brown v. Board, or that abortion be legal up to a certain point to, in any state, such as Roe v. Wade, and many more. Quote, Another signal failure of the judiciary review in recent decades has been the court's differential attitude towards the administrative state, those numerous bureaucracies that effectively govern much of our life. As noted above, the court has looked with favor on the agency since the New Deal, but in the 1984 case, Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, it declared that such agencies should be given difference with regard to the scope of their authority. In other words, the bureaucracies were to be presumed correct in their interpretation of their power. The result has mushroom administrative regulation, end quote. And what I think is very interesting before I jump into some of my comments here is at the end of the day, most of the legislation that has been called into question in some of these cases, or sorry, the regulation has been called into question, is actually written by these regulatory agencies. That's what's in their purview, to write legislation to, sorry, to write regulation that ensures that they can do their job effectively. So by the court saying that, oh, well, they're obviously competent enough to do their job right, they're writing regulation 
that's not going to be horrendously violative to Americans' rights, then they're kind of giving them a free pass. Now, of course, the Supreme Court never just sits down and says, oh, yes, you're doing everything right. We don't need to hear this case. Of course they examine it. But if they're giving them that benefit of the doubt, these agencies can get away with a little bit more. And I find that to be dangerous because at the end of the day, the these regulatory agencies are prescribed power from the legislator. So if you just give a free check mark every single time they bring something up, you're just ensuring that the legislator has more power, or I take that back, you're not at least checking their power. You are not being the restraint on them. Rather, you are just greenlighting all of the regulators or regulatory agencies that they're putting in place. And that's not how this government's supposed to work. The courts are supposed to balance the legislator and the executive and vice versa, as the quote so elegantly put it at the beginning of this piece that I'm reading. So why I believe this last example is important is because it shows that the courts are no longer, like I was just describing, they're no longer a check on the machine, but rather have become a complacent part in it. When you are a part of the machine and you can't see why the machine is failing, why the machine shouldn't be doing what it's doing, when you become a cog, you don't see the bigger picture anymore. You're simply there saying, yes, your agency's regulation is A-OK. Yes, you are good at your job. We trust you to do it right. And that's the dangerous part that really comes here is as the Supreme Court has become more involved in the political process, as we start to call our justices conservative or liberal, as they become more involved in the political process, they fall victim to some of the same issues that happens in these other branches of government. It becomes overly bloated. There's too much fat. At the end of the day, they endorse the certain policies. And I'm not saying they're doing it because, oh, yes, we believe in taking away people's freedoms. But they endorse certain policies, regulations, or they're okay with certain procedures, even if it does take away the freedoms of American, when their main purview is to step back and say, no, 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 no. We are here to ensure that the citizens have their freedoms. So we need to really break this down. Does this certain regulation infringe upon a, a freedom that is so important to human beings that we cannot take it away, that we cannot infringe upon it in any way, shape, or form, rather than just giving a rubber stamp and green light to these administrative agencies? And to be clear, like I said, it is not always the case but this last quote does point out that they tend to agree that such agencies should be given deference with regard to their scope of their authority. So just because they don't do it every single time, it's still not good that they would do it every once in a while if there's a policy that it, or a regulation that isn't necessarily really violative, but it's on the border it's a little bit questionable, and they let it pass because they are willing to give these agencies the benefit of the doubt. That is not good, in my opinion. At the end of the day, it is their job. They are the end-all, be-all. They are the final check, the third branch. So, I mean, I, technically, I guess the fourth, the fourth branch, the 
the fourth estate, the media should be calling it out. But that's not always a guarantee. You can't always look to the media to be the final savior. You would want these processes to work within government first. So when will we start to realize the whole this whole conversation really ends up at one point, which is when will we realize government is only ever destined to expand, to endorse itself, until people get tired of it and then elect or allow a strong leader to consolidate power, the power of the government. And then when people get tired of that, they want the power to spread out again. And this is the the nature of government at the end of the day. If you give power to the people and then you allow those people to elect certain people, it'll start out amazing. They will feel involved. They'll be politically active. And then they'll vote in people who actually care and want to serve their nation. Over time, at least in this country, you can look back, politician has become a career. It's been a way to get money from corporations. And as people's lives have become more busy and we've become further away from the founding of the nation when this was a hotly debated issue and people had to genuinely care. They had asked the question, do I want to live in a country that protects my freedoms like this or do I want to live in a different country under a different system? That was a very important question. It was one that people thought of and that's why they were so willing to vote and interact with the system. But now... And to be clear, it is a little bit different because only a certain segment of the population was allowed to vote back then. But now, as we move into a more populous America, a very different America, we have career politicians who take money from different organizations. We have a Supreme Court, a legislative branch, and a, sorry, a judiciary, legislative, and executive branch that more often work in tandem rather than checking one another. And the bureaucracy is larger than it's ever been. And I say that very generally. There are lots of different bureaucracies, but the government bureaucracy, especially in Washington, is larger than it's ever been. So obviously the state of our nation has changed. Uh, You know, the fundamental freedoms are still there, but the power has become so concentrated among these bureaucracies and in this one place in Washington. And eventually the people are going to be tired of it. The people are going to say, no, no, we don't want a bureaucracy that takes three weeks for this stuff to get to us. We want a strong leader who is going to make it easy, simple to get my, I don't know, tax return or some other type of document. Now, one person leading a nation, that never actually works out, and they're never going to be able to personally get all your passport cards or whatever you are doing at the time out to you in a timely manner, especially in a more timely manner. But the thought is there, that at the end of the day, these this corruption that's allowed by this overloaded government, it's going to want, cause people to want a strong person, a strong leader, maybe an authoritarian maybe just a person that the people really enjoy who they believe is strong and has a a good message and can stand up for them on the world stage, but also stand up for the people in Washington. And then sometimes that devolves into authoritarianism. People realize that they don't like their rights being violated, and then we jump back to the old system. But I think it's something that we definitely need to acknowledge. Government just expands and expands and expands, and they can become... A great thing in some cases. You know, some of the EPA regulations, they're great. And I think we should be protecting our earth. Some of the 
other business reg- regulations, I don't necessarily agree with. So, you know, there are ups and downs to everything, but just keep in mind, at least now, the purview of, of government to constantly expand, or at least it feels that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can share your opinion down in the comment section below. So let's jump to our second article from Truth Out. The Supreme Court is about to eviscerate the right to strike. Oh, eviscerate. Haven't heard that word in a while. Quote, the right to strike is on trial in the Supreme Court. At stake is a 64-year-old precedent that shields workers and unions from state lawsuits while they pursue unfair labor practice claims in the Federal National Labor Relations Board, or NLRB from this point on. If unions have to defend against costly lawsuits, it will likely discourage them from going on strike, end quote. So the question that then becomes, in this case, what, what's being argued? What, and what's the possible outcome if some power on behalf of, is it some power on behalf of the unions? What protections are there for businesses? What are the people gaining from this court case? Because just because there's going to be a restriction on unions, it doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. And that's what the author really goes for here. They come with the angle that any restrictions on unions and the right to strike is a bad thing. But we need to take a more balanced approach, which is, well, yes, diluting the power of the worker is not necessarily a good thing. We need to understand, does it actually aid businesses? Does it make it easier for businesses to operate and sustain work while unions are striking? Does it actually help people in general? Maybe the unions did something here, and if the court decides in a certain way that that practice isn't allowed anymore, or they could come down and say that practice is allowed, and they would actually encourage it or at least endorse it by some means. So it's not as black and white as this author would like to make it. And that's why I don't have too many quotes in here from the author, because you can really feel their bias coming through. So I'll give you a little bit of the details from this case. The company in question... Glacier claims that the union should be liable for the wasted cement left in trucks, cement trucks, by the way, during a strike. And the cement was left in the trucks, but the trucks were left running to prevent the cement from hardening, therefore not only wasting the cement, but also ruining the trucks. And the company still had to throw it away, though. So that's mainly the the premise that most of this is working on. And Glacier is arguing that it was intentional destruction of property, which is a little bit tricky. So did the union strikers turn off the trucks knowing it would ruin the the cement? No. But did they not deliver it, meaning that it might not be used and therefore it might be thrown away? Maybe. But then the question is, should this be heard by the NLRB, who is likely to be sympathetic to the union, which is what the union wants, or the Supreme Court, which is perceived to be a little bit more conservative and would likely side with the company? And this is the the problem with our growing bureaucracy, in my opinion, because there are so many different layers to this power structure, and there are so many different avenues that certain 
labor union could go or the company could go. It makes it extremely hard to get a decisive ruling that actually helps people in this process of understanding what they should do in the future in this case because maybe unions don't get a favorable ruling here. And at the end of the day, in the future, they learn, okay, we can't do this certain practice anymore. It will be perceived as intentional destruction of property. But no, they, some of the union members want to go to the NLRB. Some of the business owners want to go to the Supreme Court. And because there are two distinct bodies that technically could handle this, if not three, because they could also go to a labor board at the state level in Washington, and they already tried to go through the Supreme Court in Washington state. So there are so many different layers upon layers to this system. And, you know, it could be a good thing because it allows for you to examine it on a local level than a federal level. It also becomes confusing and overwrought. And at the end of the day, if this case was to end in Washington Supreme Court, then the union would be fine. There would be no problem. And Glacier would just have to deal with the fact that they threw it out. But now they want to go to the Supreme Court. They want to say, okay, let's take it to the higher court because it was already struck down by the highest court in Washington. That's okay. That's actually, I think that's a good process because there's a hierarchy of courts. But then in the middle of this, the union's jumping in and saying, no, 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 no. We're going to go to the NLRB. When the NLRB did not make a ruling or even look at this case until it was struck down by the Washington Supreme Court. So they're only jumping in now that the union is not getting their way on the matter, that they're trying to fight it in the, that the company is trying to fight it in the Supreme Court. There are too many layers to this bureaucracy, and it's complete and utter baloney. At the end of the day, <laughs> there should be one body answering this question. If it went through the courts in the first place, it should keep going through the courts. If the NLRB had first jurisdiction, if they acted on this immediately, and then they want to go to the courts after that because the NLRB has its own judiciary function, basically. And that case could be fought in the Supreme Court. But I get, I get left to the side. But my point is we need to stay within the lane that we started this battle. If you started in a court battle in a small county, in Washington State and made it all the way to the Supreme Court there and then appeal to a circuit court or an appeal, a federal appeals court and then get to the Supreme Court, just because the NLRB wants to step in now and wants to change the game doesn't mean they should be allowed to. And that's why this bureaucracy has become so overbloated because at the end of the day, they should just stay on the lane that they have. The judiciary exists for a reason to analyze these questions and to take into account which side was violated, what freedoms were violated, and how to protect those freedoms, not just now, but going forward as well. So I'll read you one quote. Quote, the three liberals on the court, Jackson, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan, appeared sympathetic to the union's arguments that the NLRB should hear the case first. Kagan said the board had handled thousands of these cases and can, quote, fit a case like this into a broader map of strike conduct that's protected and what's not. Jackson echoed Kagan's statement, noting that, quote, our president recognizes congressional intent to allow the board to develop a uniform body of law, end quote. 
Amy Coney Barrett was concerned about why the NLRB general counsel waited four years to file a complaint against Glacier. Surrey replied that the delay was an anomaly because Glacier filed a separate allegation that the state court had to resolve, end quote. So another issue I have here with how the author's going about this, but also just in general, is that the language that's being used is liberal and conservative, which, you know, we're talking about justices. And it's a it's a really an attempt by this is from people on the left and on the right. And yes, I'm doing it myself now. I'm categorizing people to people on the left and people on the right. But it's an attempt to categorize these justices, to put them in a box, to say, ah, oh, they're either on our side or they're against our side. We don't know how any of them are going to rule on this. We have no idea. Maybe Amy Coney Barrett thinks that there's a problem with why the NLRB did not make a filing earlier, but maybe she comes down on the side of the union. And the reason I say this is not because, oh, she likes unions, she's going to change her opinion. It's no, maybe she has a better understanding of the law than we do, which is very well possible for anybody listening to my podcast at this point. Uh, Give one or two people that I know. But the thing is, we can't keep using this language and keep shoving people into boxes, especially on the Supreme Court, because at the end of the day, they are there to ensure our freedoms, to ensure that the government is not encroaching upon said freedoms. And if they have an opinion, if they have a legal reasoning for something that we don't necessarily agree with, we can't instantly say, no, 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 that's just conservative. They're just being conservative. It's no, are they actually preserving our freedom? Why, from their perspective, are they preserving our freedoms? How are they doing it? And let's be clear, we need more legal knowledge to really sit down and break that down as the average consumer, the average reader. But it's a question that not many people or not enough people ask, in my opinion. And that's why I hate throwing these terms liberal justices, conservative justices on them, just so one side can demonize them. All right, let's jump into our last article. This one comes from the Daily Wire. FBI raids NYC building when communist China is accused of controlling secret police operations in other countries. So a few months ago, I watched a video describing CCP policed outposts around the world and how they influence their citizens abroad. And, I, you know, I took it seriously, but I, I kind of brushed it off. I said, oh, how big of a concern could it really be? Now I know. Quote, federal law enforcement officials reportedly raided a building in New York's Chinatown late last year as part of the FBI's efforts to rein in a secretive Chinese police force accused of collecting intelligence on Chinese diaspora, and harassing dissidents. The New York Times reported that on the third floor of a six-story office building was a Chinese outpost that the feds say was conducting police operations without jurisdiction or diplomatic approval from U.S. officials. The raid by the FBI counterintelligence agents was conducted in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn as part of the U.S. government's crackdown on communist Chinese notorious efforts to surveil their citizens 
and hunt down dissidents overseas and force them to return back to China. The global effort by China, which is present in numerous countries around the world, is known as Operation Fox Hunt. What a clever name. They have such good names, like Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. I think they like their foxes, their canines. I think they have, they have a secret code that they're going to go for with all these operation names. So as the Chinese surveillance state grows, apparently it's not just enough to control everything and everyone in their own country. Now they are doing it everywhere around the world, essentially. Of course, the CCP is not going to own up to their involvement in their citizens' lives overseas. They claim that these centers are to help Chinese citizens get settled in their new countries, which is just a crock of baloney. We know what you're up to, CCP. We understand that your surveillance state, that your control of your people, you want to control them outside of your country. Your grasp goes beyond your borders. We understand that. So stop this fake BS. At the end of the day, you might as well just own up to it at this point because you pretending, saying that, no, 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 these are, these are just centers to help our people. It makes you look, one, stupid for believing people that would believe your lies, and two, it makes you think the rest of the world is stupid for not being able to see exactly what you're doing. Quote, is extremely worrying from the human rights perspective. We're essentially allowing the Chinese diaspora to be controlled by communist China rather than subject to our nation's laws, said Igor Marim Ivory, an advisor to the Slovakian member of European Parliament. That obviously has a huge impact, not only for our relations with the Chinese diaspora across Europe, but also has huge implications for national sovereignty. One example of the Chinese taking efforts to hide their actions came in Europe when a Hungarian lawmaker said he visited a Chinese police center that was clearly marked Quintan Police Overseas Service Station. After the lawmakers talked about it, that what he saw, the sign instantly vanished, end quote. And, you know... I agree here with uh, Mr. Erie, which is this is an obvious violation of other nations' sovereignty and should once again cause us to reevaluate how we look at the Chinese Communist Party. Some of these people just want to be freer. They want to get away from their former lives. They want to get away from the Communist Party. And And the Communist Party can't stand for that. They can't stand that their system is not the best, that people, not everybody wants to live in their system. So they have to try to control it. They're like a jealous ex. How, how dare you go over to a different country? How dare you try to be more free? How dare you break away from us? We are the best. We know it's best for you. We will control you. We will tell you what to do. It's extremely scary. And it's even more scary when you see certain people talking about how great China is. So just keep it in the back of your mind. If you've made it this far, thank you very much. Let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue Site. Beagle Puppy loves bird watching alongside his feline BFF. So have you ever caught yourself staring out the window and enjoying a beautiful day? Well, that's what Jasper was doing when he had a little friend join him. Quote, in an adorable video captured by the owner... 
five-month-year-old Bo notices feline sibling, Jasper, sitting on the top of the couch and looking out the window. Being the curious pup that he is, he jumped up alongside the cat and got settled into bird watching alongside Jasper. End quote. And I think Bo knew that Jasper needed some loving, and considering what he did next, he definitely thought that Jasper needed some loving. Quote, Bo's owner shared with Viral Hog, quote, Bo jumped on the sofa and took a seat next to Jasper. He then wrapped his arm around Jasper and showed him some love as they gazed out the backyard window today, end quote. If you want to see any of the cute photos or any of the cute videos or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there is also the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post the link directly to the podcast. So you can just jump in there. You don't necessarily have to go to YouTube. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.